there, I'm Leslie Goodburn. You're listening to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. In the podcast, we look at pancreatic cancer across its impacts, outcomes, and future treatment and support. We'll hear from patients, loved ones about the reality of the diagnosis. We'll hear from surgeons, oncologists, and nurses about the work they do to support people who are affected. We'll hear about the wonderful work done by researchers to find a breakthrough in understanding and treatments for the future. We hope that as a result of the podcast, you'll learn more about the signs and symptoms, about how this diagnosis affects the family, about the hope for the future. Thank you for listening. Charlotte and I look forward to you joining us on our journey through pancreatic cancer throughout the 30 days of November with contributors from across the world. The Purple Rainbow podcasts are produced as part of Seth's legacy in memory of my wonderful, kind, curious, funny husband, Seth Goodburn. Hello, welcome to today's episode. I'm Charlotte. And before we get going with this episode, you've probably noticed this one is a bit longer than the rest of the ones that we've put out so far this month. And I have been trying to keep the episodes shorter because I know very well that there are a lot of episodes for you to listen to throughout the month. We're putting one out every day, Monday to Friday. But this episode is longer because I wanted to share everything that was said in this episode. In this episode, I'm talking to Dan. Dan was a fit, healthy young man who enjoyed running and cooking. He has a sausage dog. She's called Lucy. She's just turned one. So far, so normal. But last November, Dan's life completely and utterly changed. I had been trying to get diagnosed for something for about, I don't know, a year, a year and a bit, I would say a year and three months maybe, um, where I'd wake up in the morning and I just had a tenderness in my abdomen, basically. It was, it, it, it seemed quite minimal to me in terms of uh, how how painful it was or anything like that. It, it was it was genuinely just it felt like a tenderness in my stomach. So I kind of thought it was um a food intolerance or something. But I did try and get diagnosed a, f- a few times because I was worried about it. Um I even went through my private health insurance at the time, uh went to a really nice fancy hospital in central London because that's where I I live usually. I've moved back in with my parents in Cheshire now while I received treatment. But um I I got checked, got cleared of cancer, funnily enough. Um and didn't really get an answer to the issue, just got told it wasn't cancer. Um so I was quite happy to be honest, and eventually I stopped. I stopped really pursuing it so much because what seemed to happen was when it was ruled out as cancer, it became this big wide thing of, but it could be so many things um, that it was hard to track down. And then I moved jobs and lost the private health insurance, basically. Uh, and then trying to get, I, I tried to do it through the NHS a few times, but that was a much kind of more difficult process where you had to go through kind of tiers of blood tests and stuff before they'll even do a scan. Um, but then eventually 
it got a lot worse. One day uh, I, I ate my dinner and I just got excruciating pain after I'd eaten basically. Um, and this continued for a few days before I just went to a and And then that started a long process where they identified my liver functioning was really bad. Um, and then I did a few scans. Then I did after a, a, a few scans and then determining that they were actually quite worried. Um, I eventually did a PET scan and that's where I first found out it was cancer, but they didn't think it was pancreatic cancer. They thought it was some kind of soft cell tumor that was growing on my pancreas, which I don't know, apparently that's different <laughs> to pancreatic cancer. <laughs> so they weren't, they weren't that worried about that. Uh, they told me it was very slow growing, etc. but they wanted to do an endoscopy just to, to double check. And that's where I got the, the kind of hard hitting diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, where all of a sudden people were really seriously diagnosing me in a room that surgeon and, and this uh, doctor were both there telling me with very stern faces that this is bad. And I, I was like, oh, right. What? Yeah, it's just that I, I didn't understand what had all of a sudden changed. Like I thought I already had some kind of cancer of the pancreas, but it wasn't pancreatic cancer and now it was. And that was a very bad difference, basically. Yeah. And to have that, you know, you're sort of going along, you've, you've initially been told, don't worry, it's not cancer. It could be lots of different things. No one seemed too worried about it. And then then you get a kind of, well, yes, it is cancer, but actually don't worry too much about it. To then suddenly flip to, oh, it's actually pancreatic cancer. We do need to worry about this. I mean, what what was going through your mind at that time? I can't imagine. There was a, there was a lot because it was also, um, I wasn't only greeted with that news when I got to the hospital, but also um, I had to stay in to have a procedure um to put a stent in my bile duct because the the thing that all of a sudden got worse was I was actually extremely jaundiced, which I'm sure doing these this type of podcast you've probably heard jaundiced a lot. It seems to be yeah from speaking to other people it seems to be the one of the common things. But um, yeah, I, I I was extremely jaundiced, so they had to put a stent in my bile duct to stop it basically being blocked. That actually relieved a lot of um, the really horrible symptoms I was experiencing at the time, which was like the sickness, uh, struggling to eat, all those kind of things. Um, they went pretty quickly after that procedure. But it was my first time in hospital. So I was in a hospital bed. Luckily, I was in a private room, I think just because they felt sympathetic towards me because I was so young and I was getting diagnosed with this this cancer after only recently being told it was a different kind of cancer that wasn't that bad so I think they kind of recognized it was quite a stressful thing to be going through so I was in my own room but I mean that doesn't exactly make a diagnosis you know it doesn't make it that much better does it oh that's all right I've got a lovely room (laughs) yeah exactly I was I was sat in a room kind of luckily they let my uh, fiance at the time stayed at the hospital with me so it was quite nice to have her support but it was bloody terrible 
there's no other way to say it really it was um yeah that you're just bouncing all these things around your head i barely slept for two nights i was convinced i was going to die after googling pancreatic cancer which again something you probably hear a lot well yeah i mean had you heard of pancreatic cancer before the diagnosis particularly no I, i i had no idea to be honest even after i knew i had a problem with my pancreas I wasn't di- I, I wasn't going around Google diagnosing myself with pancreatic cancer, so I I really didn't know anything about it and um, learned quite quickly that Googling it wasn't a great thing to do. No, not 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 really, no. No. So you got the diagnosis. What happened next? So like I say, I had the stent put into my bar duct I was in hospital for two nights and then at the end of that that was where I essentially determined I think I need to move back in with my parents just because we're in a small flat in London I don't, it's just not a great place to have to stay when you're undergoing quite a brutal chemotherapy regime which was what I, I was warned essentially I, I would have to do so I made that decision, ended up being a good one because I got um, referred to the Christie from the hospital I was in, which was King's in London. And the Christie, I, I don't know if you know much about about it. It's just when you've been in a lot of hospitals like I now have, I hadn't then, but, but I've been to a lot now. Like I've had to go to A&E at a few different hospitals because of various things going on after my surgery. Um, I've... I've just, I had to go to three different hospitals in London when I was getting diagnosed. Like, I, I just feel like I've been to a lot of hospitals all of a sudden. Um, it just does feel different. It's really weird, but it genuinely does. It, it's got such a different vibe to other hospitals. It, I mean, yeah, it's a great place. Um, so I moved back up here in with my parents, got referred to the Christie and started on Fulfurinox. Uh, chemotherapy for 12 sessions which is about six months but it was more like seven after a few delays um so I, I undertook that regime basically and that was the next thing I had to uh kind of get through and it was quite a quick turnaround as well so it was just it was just really weird it was like just I had no time to process what was going on almost if that makes sense like it was so quick you had this deadline where I was going to my first appointment then I found out I was getting the um, port installed in my chest to have the chemotherapy through so that was quite quick so that was the next thing I was doing and then all of a sudden I was starting chemotherapy literally on the Saturday and that was the the port was getting put in on the Thursday it, so it was just thing after thing so I, I I really didn't get a chance to stop and think until I'd done my first chemotherapy session, really, and I was I was in the middle of it, really. Do you think that was a good thing, or was it? Would you have liked that time to think? It was a good thing. It it was definitely a good thing. I mean, I think that the time I spent thinking at that time. It was pretty morbid. I don't know. I, I and it, some people seem surprised about that because I think my friends 
consider me to have dealt with this all like really well and they see me as being quite a kind of positive person in the face of it not always being positive but you know finding ways to tackle it in a way that's overall at least structurally positive as in like i find ways to 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 deal with it in a positive way but that doesn't mean that you're always positive it just means that you real you recognize that you can find ways to turn things into a positive within it and i think that's what i i kind of do quite well but there was a lot of kind of morbid thinking um early on for sure i'm not surprised seven months of chemo what was that like it was it was rough i'm actually on chemotherapy again now too but the chemotherapy i was on then for furinox it's just brutal. I mean, you have to sit for the infusion at the hospital for, um, it started out, uh, I think it was five to six hours. I can't remember, but over time, um, the treatment time comes down a bit because if, if you don't have any severe side effects, they can do certain parts of the treatment quicker. So it, it came down, but I mean, just that alone, spending that amount of time at the hospital, sitting there with this infusion where it's kind of like gradually getting worse <laughs> because the, the longer you're there the first bag of treatment i never found that bad it almost you could sit there and not know it was kind of happening it wasn't that bad but then the second one was awful that's where you start getting like your visions getting a little bit kind of like almost blurry you're feeling sick you can't look around you feel nauseous you get really like hot and sweaty it's just awful and then that's just the treatment itself like once you leave the hospital you've got you know the the effects that kind of come on it it's pretty tough but you've, you it's like everything i don't know you get into a routine and it you just figure out a way to to deal with it or i did at least i've spoken to other people that i think struggled to establish a foothold in it and i i'm glad that didn't happen to me because i i had one or two cycles where i did feel like that like it just felt like thing after thing happening and i couldn't establish myself in it and it was so much more mentally it, it just drained you when when you couldn't establish some kind of a foothold in it so i I consider myself fairly lucky overall um but it it was by no means easy no it really isn't and and dan how are things now nearly a year on how 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 are you i had a good result from my chemotherapy um which is strange to say now because it wasn't at the time as in it wasn't terrible but halfway through my scan was positive it had shown a bit of shrinkage which was what i needed and um things were looking good but then at the end we just got this really strange result which was nothing's nothing else has happened basically it was a really neutral kind of nothing better or worse has happened from from the midway scan which when you're when you're going through it and you are suffering so much 
on a day-to-day basis as you are at the hands of the chemotherapy. It's just so disheartening. And they essentially said that the the tumour was still completely surrounding a, a major artery, which is a very bad place to be in. And that was actually, weirdly, the first time I heard I was stage three. I didn't know that at the start. When I was diagnosed, they didn't tell me the staging. When I got to the Christie, they said they don't use conventional staging unless you request it from them because they, they at least my team at the Christie did. I don't know if this is the Christie generally, but they said they didn't find it helpful because everyone thinks they understand staging. So they think stage one good, stage four bad. But the oncologist told me, actually, you can get a really bad stage one and a good stage four. So, so basically, I, I never found that out until I saw uh, the surgeon for the first time because they handed it to the surgeon, the case, even though they said they, they weren't entirely sure what could be done, basically. So it was, like I say, it was a weird result. Um, and at the time, it sounded almost bad to me, to be honest. I mean, they said they they weren't sure what could be done. They said that the artery was completely surrounded by this tumour but they said because of my age and health they were they the surgeon said they think they can do something basically so it got handed over and I didn't feel too good about it honestly really? yeah yeah and and I saw the surgeon he told me I was stage three which I didn't know and again that was like another level of scary almost I went through to the surgery date absolutely terrified being told that probably all that was going to happen was they'd open me up and do nano knife close me again and then we'd have to wait a few weeks to see how well nano knife had worked i don't know if you know too much about that as well but it's where they basically do a low level a, a kind of low level electric shock to try and just kill some of the cancer cells basically uh, it's not been used a lot for pancreatic cancer. I think it's because a lot of people who get it are a fair bit older than than me, and it's not it's it's not proven to do well or not well at all. Basically, I just don't think it's been used enough with the cancer to really know. And especially stage three, apparently, it's there's not a lot of evidence as to whether it it helps or hinders someone with stage three cancer. So I just don't think there's a lot of justification to spend the money to do the operation usually if it's not going to reliably give results. Um, But they went in and my surgeon, who is an absolute freak of nature in the best possible way, they, they were doing surgery for 13 hours, 10 of which was all him, Three hours was a vascular, I think it's called a vascular uh, expert who, who did a lot of the like vein reconstruction and the artery reconstruction, but they managed to get the whole tumour out. Oh, wow. Yeah, remarkably. I, I was never, I was never even hinted at this being possible, by the way. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a possibility before the, the surgery in in my mind um but they had to take a lot out to do it basically they took out my entire pancreas which i still um occasionally will be in hospital like i had to go to a and e a few months ago um for some 
like I, I was being sick excessively all of a sudden and stuff. So I went to A&E and one of the nurses I spoke to there, I told them I'd had my whole, a total pancreatectomy. And they said to me, that's impossible. You can't live without a pancreas. And I've been told this by quite a few medical professionals. Honestly, it's so funny. I'm always just sat there like, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, I've got my discharge for, like, you can see they've taken it out. I'm here. You must be able to. I I don't know what else I can say. But yeah, they took out the whole pancreas, three fifths of my bowel, my spleen, a bit of my stomach, I believe a little bit of my liver they had to reconstruct i think two arteries like it was a massive surgery i think the surgeon said it was one of if not the biggest he's ever done basically how does that feel when a surgeon tells you that you know you're you're one of the the, that just blows it blows my mind it's crazy it's crazy just because for for about a week or two after the surgery, you're still on so many drugs that I think, although you become more conscious, you I don't think you understand the extent to which your your body is kind of like suffering and you're in a bit of a weird state mentally too. Like, even though things are going on in your everyday life that would concern you in a normal kind of space because it's not normal you're in hospital you're under 24 hours supervision you're being given all all your meals directly to like do you know what i mean like nothing about it's normal so i think you don't realize until you're a a few weeks if not even maybe months out you look back and you reflect on things that were going on and you just realize that everything was so warped like your understanding of the world around you was so kind of abstracted at the time in a way that you couldn't appreciate that I don't think you you realised just how messed up everything was. I don't know. Like all your body functioning is, is I mean, it, it, you're not functioning properly. You can't do anything. You can't eat properly. You can't go to the toilet properly to be honest like you know that side of things is very rocky for a while when you've had a lot of your bowel taken out and things like that there's blood where you don't want to see blood i mean i've got quite used to it because of chemotherapy but it's it's pretty it's pretty rough and i don't think you appreciate it for quite a while you mentioned about everyday life what is everyday life like for you now so again it's it's weird because everything's changed so much that what i think is quite normal now maybe not considered normal to me even a year ago now because i still wasn't diagnosed yet and i was still pretty convinced around this time last year that i would maybe have to have some kind of like minor-ish surgery or something but that it would solve the issue and that would be it um but normal now is i i would say i live a relatively normal life at the at the minute i have to go to the hospital a lot more than a normal person probably would i've got a pretty badass scar across my abdomen 
Do you show so it off a lot? Can, oh, I show it off a lot. Yeah, it's my it's my number one party trick. I mean, my old party trick was I could fit my whole fist in my mouth, which isn't that impressive. So I needed something better, you know. So in a way, I've I've really you got, got, it. got like, I've got a great outcome here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's I I do have some problems day to day still that I, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get past fully. I mean, like, losing three-fifths of your large bowel just gives you digestion issues. The same with the losing the, the pancreas. I'm a diabetic now, which I wasn't before. Uh, so that's obviously a huge change. But again, it's something that weirdly becomes normal quicker than you think it it will if that makes sense like when i first started having to inject um after the the operation where they took my pancreas out it felt life ending honestly i i really thought for a while that perhaps the damage that had been ju- done during the operation was worse than the alternative which would have potentially been well would have almost definitely been dying in fact if they hadn't have taken out the pancreas, they wouldn't have taken out the tumour. And I don't think there was many other ways it was going to get gone. But I, I thought I thought they completely kind of ruined any normal life that I could have again. I thought it was it was over basically. I thought the diabetes and the amount of change I'd have to put up with was yeah, completely devastating. But what is it three months later and it feels so normal i i don't i genuinely don't know what i was so worried about i get it though it's change isn't it and something you know you you mentioned you're passionate about cooking and foods exactly it's one of your things you know yeah something that you love is going to change and be different yeah and and it's it's like it's not only the 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 kind of like more if you can call them minor changes like that which it, it it's not a minor thing really but it is minor in that it's changing a habit more than it's changing anything else and and that habit isn't even your love for cooking and what you're cooking you can cook exactly the same things the habit is you now have to learn how to inject insulin appropriately etc and deal with all of those kind of like problems but there are a different set of problems to the ones that i would have had if they hadn't have taken out the pancreas like they're, they're a much better set of problems to have and I, I recognize that now but um for a while i was really i would say depressed honestly about the the diabetes and it, you do feel like you're not getting enough help because it's such a personal problem, meaning it's you that suffers if you don't manage your diabetes properly. It, people suffer around you because your your health is bad and, and you don't feel happy, etc. But you're the one that feels bad when your blood sugar's low, feels concerned constantly that you're not managing it well enough. All those things that kind of plague your mind all the time and your health like it it's awful it really is but then you start learning to manage it 
and all of a sudden the most terrible thing that plagues your thought every your thoughts every second of the day becomes nothing you, like you don't even think about the injecting anymore you think about it in so much as saying oh i should probably inject three units before i eat a piece of toast or something like that but that's it, it, it it's nothing else it, it's strange it's a process now rather than a, a mountain to climb yeah it is the the next stage of it for me that is concerning is going abroad and doing things like that like that that is concerning and i haven't done anything like that yet and i've actually got the first instance of that coming up because one of my really good friends is getting married and he's jordanian and his wedding is in in jordan even though he he currently lives here he is actually going to move back but he lives in england right now but um i've got to go to that wedding in um about a month about a month's time so it's it's things like that that i think you used to go abroad and you know, that's just... That's just have to worry about your passport. <laughs> that's yeah, it, exactly. isn't it? exactly. You, you worry about, like, these, these minor things and, and you go and you have a great time. And I, I do I do wonder a little bit if, if that might be a harder obstacle to kind of traverse so easily. Like, it, it, it doesn't feel like that will ever get that comfortable again. And I do worry that that will impact kind of the enjoyment you can get out of something like a holiday and I'm sure I'll figure it out. It's not that I'm saying there'll be no enjoyment from it, but if I, if my bag gets lost and you know, all of my backup insulin's in the bag, that's a concern. If I take all of it in my hand luggage and then somehow I, I lose that. There's just so many things that are worrying and and then you worry about like, I'm not sure I can get health insurance when I travel anymore. I really don't know if they'll, if, if anyone will give me health insurance, I can't get life insurance now. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's practical things that it does impact, and I think it's it's kind of irreversible in some ways that it will impact my life, and I won't. It, it's not a simple oh, positivity can get over it like that. It's too practical to to not. But it doesn't mean that you you can't find a way through them you know i'm sure it's manageable and i'm sure if i did this podcast after jordan i'd be talking about how oh traveling so easy and you think it's this big issue but it's not etc but you know i I am where i am right now (laughs) what's it been like for your your family going through this i've got a very close family anyway uh, there's, I've got five brothers and sisters. Um, my parents are still together, so there's eight of us in my family. And then, um, you know, we're all of an age where, like, one of my sisters is married. Um, two of my brothers are in kind of long-lasting relationships where their partners are close to the family. Um, there's a lot of us, and I've got a, a wife now. Um, we got married. A month ago, almost oh, to the day, just a, just over a month. Yeah, it was the sixteenth. You want to remember that? You want to remember that date? Just just to, yeah. just to let you know. Yeah, definitely. Keep hold definitely. of that date. <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It's pretty ingrained in my head. I think it's it rolls off the tongue quite easily. The sixteenth of September, 
maybe it's just because it's significant. I think that actually, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, I, I've done a, I've done a good job so far for the whole month that we've been married. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's been incredibly hard on all of them, to be honest. My my wife has been incredible throughout the whole process, and I mean everyone has, but like she's spent the most time with me, obviously, because we sleep in the same bed and everything and uh, she's been so supportive but my my mum's just an incredibly loving person anyway and I mean for a while I couldn't even mention the word cancer without her just immediately crying and it's still very hard for her I think it's still hard for everyone but I think returning to some level of normality where I don't seem so ill has kind of helped a lot of people move on to a certain extent and be able to feel somewhat comfortable with everything that's going on. But I th- I think my mum still feels it quite intensely. She, she struggles with it all. Like she, she loves to tell me that if she could take it away from me and, and have it herself, she would, which is... A lovely It's thing such a mum thing to say, isn't it? It's such a mum thing to say. It's like that's not helpful, mum. It's like, like I don't, I, you wouldn't I, wish it on me. I would you. never <laughs> of course, I would never ever allow that trade if it were possible to happen. It's so you know, it, it's such a misplaced statement, I think, isn't it? It's like comes from such a good place, but actually in the real world it's really not not helpful for anyone including her by the way it's it's not it's not a good thing to wish upon yourself either you should never ever wish it on yourself even if it was you know to to someone else's benefit that you love you mentioned a blog earlier tell me where people can find this blog so we can uh I can share it and, we, and everyone can read it and everyone can find out more about Lucy. I mean, people are just going to look for pictures of Lucy, just so you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's true. My mum's also got a sausage dog now as well, which is a puppy. She's 12 weeks old called Lila. So Chaos. Yeah, there's even there's even pictures of a younger sausage dog on there now. But um, the the blog is uh, it's called Ebb and Flow. You can find it at www.ebb hyphen uh, and hyphen flow dot blog um i started it when was it it was about it was it was quite shortly after i was diagnosed um i wasn't working at the time i just i knew i needed something to pass the time and when you're on chemotherapy it's weird you both feel quite like devoid of energy you sit around you feel like low and depressed and dark and tired but you still want to do something you know like you know you can feel every terrible emotion under the sun but I don't know I'm not the kind of person that can sit there and just feel helpless i i need an outlet for it and i needed a new kind of means of being productive i used to go out and run every every night for 
miles and that was my outlet, but I didn't have that anymore and I wasn't working, which is another outlet. So I started a blog. I've always liked reading. Um, and to my surprise, quite a lot of people started reading it. Actually, I think I've got about just under 600 subscribers to the blog, which isn't bad. I mean, I haven't done anything to promote it really. You're not um, on TikTok. I started, <laughs> no, I started a, a Twitter, but I think more people find out about my Twitter through my blog than they do, you know, the other way around, I think anyway. Um, so yeah, I just started it to share, I don't know what really, I don't know if it was to share the cancer experience or it kind of just started off as a way to update all my friends and family on what was going on, to be honest, because it was easier than trying to keep up with the WhatsApp messages I was getting. Yeah. <laughs> which was a lot. Yeah, it was it was a lot, which is lovely, but massive admin overhead. So why not just create create a blog when you've never created any kind of blog and start writing one? I don't know if that necessarily makes sense, but it it was something to do. And it's been a lot of fun. I think it makes perfect sense. It's a great idea. <laughs> Dan, we'll make sure I've, we'll make sure that link is in the show notes for people to click on the blog as well. Maybe you get six hundred and two subscribers yeah, that, i mean honestly <laughs> any any additional subscribers well, that would be great thank you so much to dan for spending time with me and sharing what he's been going through this last year it was a real joy talking to dan and i will put the link for his blog in the podcast show notes for you so you can click on and uh, read what he's up to and see what lucy the sausage dog looks like as well don't forget we've got an episode every weekday monday to friday throughout november and if you want to find out more about what we're up to you can head to purplerainbow.co.uk